At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast. We give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And today we have a bone to pick, don't we? Yeah, this is going to be a dense podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And we are talking all about bone density. So uh, first of all, we know that hormones affect bone density, right? People talk about hormones this and hormones that. But what hormones should people be thinking about whenever they're thinking about bone density? Yeah, um, essentially all of the classical hormones, uh, for example, testosterone, androgens, testosterone is your main androgen, estradiol is your main estrogen, growth hormone, IGF-1, even thyroid hormone. Um, However, uh, I'm remembering from medical school and residency how we treat bone density problems. And unless you're in adolescence, we don't use any of these, do we? I suppose not. And you can even think of parathyroid hormone. I suppose that's one hormone that, that does count. Does have a place in bone density treatment in the traditional model. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, how does someone know that they have low bone density? Um, I guess uh, if your parents told you you're big bone, then you have good bone density. And if they didn't tell you that you're big bone, then maybe not. <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, the, the main way to track this is a DEXA scan, not necessarily the same DEXA scan as we talk about getting body composition where they get a full body T-score, a full body bone density, or they tell you your total ba- pounds of dry bones if they dehydrated them, but uh, rather a T-score. Um, and the ones that we care about the most are in the spine and in the femoral necks and in the hips. Yeah, and those are the ones that you will get tested specifically if you are in the traditional medical setting and what if you're a woman in your 60s or if you have a family history, have been on glucocorticoids, smoking, some of these risk factors, then your doctor or your nurse practitioner might say, hey, let's check your bone density. And that will tell you very precisely where your lumbar spine compares to a healthy 30-year-old's lumbar spine, femoral neck, and so forth. You can get kind of a gauge on what your global bone density is with the DEXA scans we referenced that are at DEXAFIT and many chains that perform the exact same tests that look at muscle mass, body fat, bone density, and some of them include visceral fat, which is a nice metric. For that, you can go to DEXAFIT.com or DEXAScan.com slash locations. Uh, We unfortunately do not get any kickback of that. Uh, we will we will likely have a podcast sponsor here soon, though. So more on that later. Um, but anyway, that's how to get a DEXA scan that would measure everything. 
But as you mentioned, the DEXA scan that's specifically looking at that spine and the hips, that's what you get when you go to your regular doctor. Yeah, and other things we think about testing, like if someone has a osteopenia or an osteoporosis that makes no sense in the clinical history of the patient, or just for thoroughness, a lot of times we will check a urine calcium, you know, either a 24 hour or a calcium creatinine ratio to see is this person losing calcium in the kidney because that can be a fairly simple fix um, with the thiazide diuretics. Mm -hmm. uh, caveat there, you wanna make sure you're not losing sodium or you will actually impair bone density. So you may be thinking, oh, we're, we're saving the calcium, but because of the interaction of the electrolytes, you definitely don't want to be giving someone hyponatremia and setting them up for other consequences of that in addition to impairing their ability to put back on bone density. So something to think about. Seems so like yeah. everything is nuanced, isn't it? Yeah, there is a lot of nuance to things. It's uh, it's tricky like that. I guess I should stop my two gram of sodium a day diet while I'm on my thiazide. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, some other things to check. Uh, does this patient also have sarcopenia? Are they resistance training? What is their body composition like in general? Yes, uh, obesity, as common as it is, does have an upside and it is protective against osteopenia and osteoporosis. Yeah, you are gonna have more lean body mass if you are overweight or obese and you're gonna have more lean mass that's pushing and pulling on the bones and you're gonna be carrying around more weight which is gonna give your body a stimulus to hold on to some of that bone. So it is an upside, but it's not our recommendation or mainstay of treatment by any means. When we talk about physical activity, it, we'll kind of go in the reverse order here. We'll talk about a, a study that I've seen mentioned that I thought was just so unbelievable that like there's no way that this is real. And the claim was all you have to do is jump up and down 10 times a day to fix your bone density. And I thought that seems like a very minimal stimulus. Um, so we looked at the data and there was a statistically significant difference between women who were jumping up and down and women who were in the control group. Um, but the control group was losing bone density at a like an unprecedented rate in that study. And the changes were very small, I believe less than a 1% effect size. And it was within a very small time frame. At eight weeks and 16 weeks, they checked the bone density. And uh, realistically, if you're managing someone, you know, probably no more often than every six months, probably best if you're doing it every 12 months to really get a gauge on how things are trending. So um, I thought it was interesting some of the, I would consider this a bit of a passive aggressive statement by the authors of the study. Um, there were a significant number of participants that dropped out or did not complete their assigned jumping. And the authors said, apparently jumping 20 times twice daily and waiting 30 seconds between jumps required too much time and effort from subjects. So I, I found that little gym in there and figured we'd throw it in because it's a bit comical. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Um, I guess the control group had also either stopped their strontium before the study or maybe started GH. So there is very likely confounders, confounders to this study, but it's a decent start, uh, I guess you could say. Um, and this, by the way, this is maximal effort jumping, um, not necessarily well, jump. Well, jumping high. It wasn't jump rope where your feet are barely coming off the ground. They, yeah, they, they wanted were, them to 
to jump high. Um, and I believe we looked into the materials and methods and they didn't have them squat all the way down because it'd be nice if it was, you know, a body weight, at least parallel squat, if not ATG, and then jump um, all the way up and down. But uh, it's not necessarily translatable if you're going to do jump ropes and barely come off the ground. Yeah, exactly. You need to have a stimulus there. So this is the example of a jumping stimulus that was used in a longer eight-month trial. Um, this is actually called the Lift More trial, L-I-F-T-M-O-R, which I think is a great name. Yep. Um, it's called impact loading. And portion of this was what they called jumping chin-ups. So the person would grab a bar and then they would jump off of a box and then they were instructed to they jump up, lower themselves, and land as heavily and comfortably as possible, which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron. <sighs> yeah, so putting as much weight on the ground and not the bar as possible, but maintaining comfort. That's, a, that's an interesting one. So um, things to keep in mind, um, where is the weight? Which plane is the weight going into? Is it going into the axial plane? Is it going to the sagittal plane, whatnot? Um, and, and yeah, that, that jumps out, uh, jumps out at you. <laughs> that, uh, they're doing things that specifically load weight axially. Yeah. And some of the other movements, they show the same thing, right? Yeah. So. Dead, deadlift, overhead press and back squat. Things that you would think of, maybe not overhead press. Deadlifts or certainly open trap bar deadlifts is one of our favorite lower injury, um, high return on investment for stockpiling bone. Absolutely. And, you know, even if you're sitting on a leg press with 800 pounds on it, that's not going to do much for your lumbar spine. Great for the femurs, probably. Yeah. Um, and the change they saw, again, small study, but a pretty intensive trial over eight months. They saw, like, yeah, there was a, you know, lumbar spine loss of about 1.2% in the control group. And in the high-intensity resistance training group doing the jumping chin-ups, uh, they had about a 3% improvement in their lumbar. Uh, looks like about a, a smaller improvement in the femoral neck, 0.3%. But that's compared to a 2% loss in the mm -hmm. control group. Yeah, that was quite a bit of loss. Um, a decent enough data here, although I think that there's a... Uh, in addition to this review in our non-systematic review, there's a whole bunch of other articles that support similar protocols for imp both improving and maintaining bone density. Yeah, and you definitely want to start sooner rather than later, stockpiling bone. Um, never too late to start, but the sooner the better. And as we've mentioned in our past, uh, I believe our synthetic estrogens and synthetic hormone replacement podcast, mm -hmm. we talked about the effect of oral contraceptives on peak bone mineral density. So be sure to check that one out. Yep. What about supplements? Everyone wants to take a pill that's going to help them achieve their goals. And there's a dozens and dozens of bone building supplements out there. So we looked at some of those ingredients, which ones work and which ones had more mystique to them? The ones that very that likely work are vitamin D3 and vitamin K2 MK7. Um, at an efficacious dose, a lot of companies um, do not have high enough dose. Um, vitamin D, I'd say a high enough dose is to 
bump your vitamin D up, which for a lot of people is 5,000 or even 10,000, especially if it's not in a soft gel and if you're not consuming it with fats. And then uh, for vitamin K2, it's likely at least 100 micrograms, but probably significantly more than that it is an optimal dose in most people, especially if they're on a statin, which can deplete vitamin K2. So those are the first two. Another one that has um, been hotly debated among the functional medicine community is strontium. And strontium will definitely improve your DEXA scans. Uh, it's questionable whether it's going to reduce fracture risk. That's going to be dose dependent. And mm. uh, strontium is really in this sort of interesting category where it is both a supplement and a medication. Uh, yep. It's actually being prescribed again in the UK, or at least they have the ability to prescribe it again. I think that yep. was late 2010s that that came back into being uh, able to be prescribed for patients. Yep. And then here in the United States, it's very common for strontium citrate at a lower milligram dose. I mean, typically you're looking at 2000 milligrams of the strontium ranolate versus 680 plus or minus of the citrate. Um, to be used for the same purpose, to improve bone mineral density. Uh, and this is kind of a confounder if you're looking at someone's overall bone density. You'll definitely see an improvement there, but you'll see an improvement regardless of whether or not they are resistance training, getting adequate vitamin D, calcium. So it can make it look like things are improving much more rapidly. Yep. And I would worry about someone just taking that pill over the person who is doing the resistance training, like the Liftmore trial. Yeah. Um, you don't want to trick your doctor into thinking you have better bone density than you actually do. <laughs> it's just like you don't want to trick your doctor into thinking that you have a much lower A1C that you actually do if there's a chance that it's pathologic. We went down a pretty solid rabbit hole here. And there's a lot of claims about strontium, and we like to validate or invalidate those claims. People know we have a, a very open mind, and um, we like to look into things. And we've seen claims by companies that happen to make strontium citrate that says um, strontium citrate is going to... Um, be just as effective, if not more effective than strontium ranolate. And that just didn't appear to be true because when you clicked on their link, it popped up and uh, the literature article did not cite that whatsoever. Yeah, this blog, which can always be a red flag if you're looking at the validity of like something I read online and you know people who are doing their research, be very cautious of blogs. Um, they said strontium is the only trace mineral present in human bone whose level in bone correlates with bone compressive strength. And you click the link to their citation and that citation mentions nothing about, nothing of the sort, nothing about the strength and strontium, no correlation. Um, so they essentially just made this up and put a placeholder citation in there thinking, Oh, people aren't going to click through this or or maybe chat GPT wrote this in this day and age. Who knows? Yeah, it could have been. Um, either way, that was disconcerting to see. Um, strontium does have some good data. For example, um, in uh, human-made bone concrete formulations, it definitely has potential applicability. And uh, it also has potential applicability in a situation where 
someone gets a DEXA scan, they've already been tracking their DEXA scan for a while, so they know, is my bone density, density stable? Um, is my bone, am I losing bone density? If so, at what rate am I losing bone density? And then they can add them in, um, and that way the strong team is not masking any other effect. Yeah, because you could lose, you know, say you lose 4% bone density in a lumbar spine in one year in actual density, but you're taking strontium, because those are heavier, you're going to see in the DEXA scan that your bone density appears to have stabilized. Mm -hmm. So you definitely want to let your healthcare provider know that you're taking strontium. Um, and if they are not aware, let them know that you are, you know, this is likely to affect a DEXA scan because not everyone is aware of this. Certainly nothing that was in my education in uh, my nurse practitioner program, but something that I came across that, hey, this can falsely elevate the DEXA. That being said, it does seem to improve bone density and probably reduces fracture risk if we extrapolate from the ranolate studies. Yeah. But you can't say that just because it's citrate and not ranolate that you get all the benefit and none of the side effects. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a pretty good review here um, that just kind of summarizes says, there is no evidence to, to suggest that the ranolate has any different or more beneficial effects on bone than any other strontium salt. So essentially, I, I would suspect same benefits, same risk. So definitely yep. be cautious if someone has cardiovascular disease um, or someone is at high risk for having a cardiovascular event. Speaking of that, we also looked into that and it didn't appear to be a definitive uh, mechanism of action causation link. Perhaps it's because strontium often displaces calcium and of course calcium and its action on calcium channels in the heart is important for um, the electrical conducting system of the heart. So perhaps it's not related to plaque buildup or um, strontiumidosis, just like you have amyloidosis. <laughs> perhaps it's not related to those mechanisms, but it could also be multiple mechanisms. Could be Occam's razor, could be Hickam's dictum. Yeah, we really don't know the mechanism there. It hasn't been clearly elucidated, um, but those were seen in some of the RCTs. Observational data has had mixed results. So you definitely want to use caution when there's the unknown there because we want to do no harm. Um, so if there was a complementary treatment that would decrease risk of cardiac events. Hmm. Still the number one killer. We must not have one. <laughs> for, for those who don't know, that would be HRT. That'd be estrogen replacement. Looking at strontium ranolate, its effects on bone density, and then a three-patient case report or case series, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, we'll look at the comparison there. Uh, strontium ranolate taken for three years consistently increased mineral density in the lumbar spine. 14.4%, um, I believe, in lumbar spine, and then either femur or total body, 8.3%. This was a New England Journal of Medicine study. 14.4% lumbar spine, and then 8.3% at the femoral neck. Okay, perfect. There we go. And then if we compare that to people who were taking you know, about a third of the milligram dose um, in strontium citrate form, so you have patient one, uh, total hip bone mineral density increased 2.7% the first two years. And this was after stopping alendronate, another medication we'll talk about. 
mm-hmm. um, and continue to increase up to 9.2% above baseline after six years of treatment. So pretty impressive result. This would certainly fool some people if they didn't know the patient was taking this and they just saw the DEXs and they, wow, this looks great. Patient number two, an increase of 4.3% at the lumbar spine, 7.6% total hip within one year. At five years, 6.5% lumbar spine, 12% total hip. Uh, Stop the strontium. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. One year after stropping, lost 9.1% lumbar spine and 42 at the hip. So... The effects on bone mineral density fluctuate very rapidly um, in no normal physiologic state, even of very low estradiol levels without confounders like hyperthyroid or hyperparathyroidism. Mm -hmm. Is someone going to lose 9% of their lumbar spine bone density in one year? So if you saw this, you'd kind of scratch your head and think, oh, you know, something's up here. Um, Maybe it was a different machine or in this case, certainly the patient supplementing with the strong team and then withdrawing that supplementation. Yeah, the third patient saw a pretty similar increase, 10% lumbar spine, 4.3% hip, and then uh, after stopping again, uh, the bone mineral density decreased, uh, essentially losing the progress and a bit more, 14% and 6%. Yeah, so I think the way that I will incorporate this into my practice is making sure I have at least a year, you know, say, DEXA January, DEXA next January. What's our rate of bone loss? Have we stabilized that? Have we done everything we can? And then if the patient is low cardiovascular risk, strontium could be reasonable, Um, especially if someone doesn't have extremely low bone density, if they're mildly osteopenic or not even osteopenic. Um, If they are truly osteoporotic, then there are probably better treatments. Other things that I would refer out to to a specialist who's going to administer these usually monoclonal antibodies would be the standard of care now uh, or best treatments if payers cover. Yeah. And as we mentioned, your bone is like the, both your bone and your muscle really are the 401ks of your health span. They're going to allow you to have the best chance to have a high quality of life very late into life. But for example, at age 100, uh, people who have high qualities of life often have excellent bone mineral density and lean body mass as well. Um, So I I guess that we might as well talk about different therapies like growth hormone. That's what people like to do in the 90s, the anti-aging molecule, MK677, uh, its modern counterpart. The the cure-all gives you less body fat and better hair 
more bone, more muscle. What could go wrong? Diabetes. <laughs> but on a serious note, the MK677 is a growth hormone secretagogue. I would find it very unlikely that the benefits would outweigh the risks in this um, because people do tend to develop insulin resistance. Some people pretty profoundly, some people not at all. And hyperphagia. Yeah. In fact, you, you might get a bit of a benefit on bone just eating more, just becoming a little overweight. A little heavier. If you're not. Yeah. And I'm also glad that they ran this study for a three-year treatment period with an additional year follow-up. Mm-hmm. So patients were on ibutamorin MK677 for three years. The first year, they saw a decline in bone mineral density of the femur. Thankfully, we had some previous yep. research with actual growth hormone <laughs> treatment so that nobody said, stop this trial early. We're wasting away and losing bone mass because that would have been very unfortunate. Yeah, it's the, the bone remodeling process. So it remodels and you see a dip with both the uh, ibutamorin, which I think is now Loom 201, and then uh, same thing with HGH, uh, an increase after more years. Uh, and this kind of reminds me of hair loss and hair growth. Yeah. So a lot of times when someone starts a medication that we know is very beneficial for hair growth, they have an initial shed. shedding yep. and they think, oh no, this is making the problem worse. And then if you go back at six months or 12 months, uh, in this case, you know, you see a bit faster cosmetic result with the hair growth. Um, bone remodeling ha- cycles as well. It looks like about four months would be the average. Um, and growth hormone has to be given for at least 18 months before you see that sort of switch yep. towards a, a net positive on bone density. There was one study and they looked at uh, follow-up on growth hormone 2.5 IU after four years, and there's an increase in total body and lumbar spine of five and 14%. So it's pretty solid. And you can see if you start stacking treatments, or even if you you do have uh, osteoporosis, if you get some biologics right off the bat, you can stockpile initially with what your, your best investment is. So you can put some money into your Roth IRA first. And then after you've kind of, um, uh, gone through that option early on, then you can start stacking other things off to continue to build up bone mass. Yeah. And then you can, uh, we'll put this chart up. I just think it's remarkable that this crazy increase you have at the time that the growth hormone is stopped yep. uh, in terms of an acceleration of the bone mineral density. I don't know that we have an exact reason for this. I just call it the like lag factor. You have to take into account that you're going to see improvement 12 months after that growth hormone is stopped. Yeah, presumably just less cell turnover. So less growth hormone, you have um, that uh, reincarnation or life cycle is not going to be happening as much. So just like you see a decrease at the start, you get that extra little bit at the end. Yeah, and then trying to figure out what a normal rate of bone loss actually is is extremely difficult because the numbers are all over the place. Depends on what country you're in. Different ethnicities will have different rates of turnover. Um, I tend to think that countries in Europe do a little bit better than the United States in terms of losing bone per year, losing meaning they lose less because they tend to be more active, yep. doing things that are more osteogenic. Like walking. <laughs> Even walking, yeah. Um, it doesn't take very much at all to go from a, a very poor state of health for your body to a very good one. Um, but annual rate, we say something like, you know, 
0.4 on the low end, maybe up to 1.6% per year on the high end. Mm -hmm. In some populations, maybe even higher than that. And, and lumbar spine loss seems to be a bit faster compared to the femoral neck. Yeah, um, one interesting example of uh, more rapid bone loss is during menopause and the menopause transition period when it is often 10% a year or more. Yeah, whenever you go from a, let's say, hovering around a nice estradiol level of 100 in your perimenopause, and then that estradiol level drops to undetectable, or maybe it's in the teens, that will cause a, you know, a shedding of bone, we could almost mm -hmm. call it. Uh, and then it's not a linear drop off. Um, you know, five years out from menopause, 10 years out from menopause, you're going to see that process kind of slow and stabilize, not halt completely, but definitely slow because your body is kind of at this new homeostasis, assuming you don't put any hormones back in. Yeah. Uh, but I've heard from WHI and OB-GYNs and all these um, women's health proponents or supposed women's health proponents that you lose all benefits of HRT, cardiovascular benefit, uh, bone benefit. You lose all of that when you stop HRT. Now, that doesn't seem like it could be true, does it? That's a good talking point. And, and we were talking about, a, I think a patient had actually gone to see a, a provider in the women's health space. And they said, well, you know, why would you start something that you're going to lose the benefits of whenever you stop doing it? To which I replied, well, no, why would you start exercising? Because the benefits are going to go away if you mm -hmm. stop doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, why would you do the dishes? You're just going to get dirty dishes again. Yeah. Why would you stop smoking if the benefits are going to go away when you start smoking just a little bit? Just two, <laughs> two cigarettes a day. I like playing this game. I, I've had discussions with many specialists because obviously our uh, health optimization specialty, if you will, expands all fields and all organ systems in which you have to be well-versed to do a good job. And there's a lot of nuance to this. Um, so you're talking about... Um, you know, uh, this case, uh, how many cigarettes a day that you smoke is concerning or how many milligrams of nicotine we can play that game. One milligram, two milligram, three milligram. Um, shout out to all of our listeners out there that use nicotine at a very low dose as a uh, nootropic. So tell us in the comments uh, about your one milligram per day of nicotine and how it has not exceeded that. Or if it has exceeded that, uh, tell us as well. Um, but anyway, back on the topic, your, your uh, benefit, it, the way I look at it is it is like if you had a million dollars in your bank account when you retire, say you go through menopause, you can either lose 10% of that um, very rapidly right then at age 55. Because you buy a vacation home. Well, probably, <laughs> yeah. probably not for those prices, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the case is, you lose 10% of that per year. So 100K per year. Or you can add to that bank account, or at least keep it the same at a million dollars or just over a million dollars. And then as you come off, you come off very slowly. And instead of losing 10% a year, you lose 2% a year. And um, the area under that curve of how much bone mass you have, and um, let's say you start exercising and doing axial loading resistance training, you're going to get way more bang for your buck investing in that resistance training if your bank account still has a million dollars in it at age 59 or at age 64 than if it had 600K. Yeah. And if you are, you know, 
you shouldn't pick just one investment, but if you are picking one modality, then exercise is going to be the one with the best return. Now, it is good to diversify. I wouldn't put my investment portfolio 100% into strontium or 100% into vitamin D. Um, Looking at those things, things that you take or biologics or medications, those are not going to give you the benefits of balance that you would get with exercise. And not falling becomes very important as you increase in age. My first job when I became an RN was in orthopedics. I saw a lot of people fall and bad things happen after you fall, especially if you have a fracture. Yeah, Um, that's a good way to put it. And again, that's why exercise and diet are the two main pillars of health that have far more efficacy than any other pill that you can take, whether it's a diet or a supplement or any other pill or injection, we'll add that too. Um, And sometimes in the obesity and fitness industry, exercise kind of gets a bad name. For example, Stan Efferding was recently talking about how sleep is better than exercise for fat loss. But what he was really saying is, um, don't miss out on sleep in order to do uh, like stupid fasted cardio or something in the morning. Like obviously if you're sleeping five hours, sleep seven hours and then worry about what you're gonna do. And in obesity medicine, it's well known that if people start exercising, that does not lead to weight loss, but it will lead to a lot of very positive outcomes like um, improved bone mineral density. Yeah, even if your body weight does not change, someone who goes from being sedentary, I think that's usually classified as less than 4,000 steps per day, to even halfway following the exercise recommendations. So let's say they lift once a week, and they do 90 minutes of aerobic exercise per week. A year from then, they're gonna have way less visceral fat, probably less subcutaneous fat, definitely a bit more lean body mass and healthier lean body mass as well. Yeah. Um, another modality or investment that we have not spoken about is bisphosphonates, like alendronate. Um, and we, uh, I suppose, have to talk about this because my brother's a dentist and lots of our friends are. Our dentist, and uh, that's kind of the one that's known as a potential risk for major jaw surgery, osteonecrosis of the jaw, atypical fractures in general. And um, although this is a fairly antiquated med, for the right patient, it is reasonable. And for a very high fracture risk patient, um, then the benefit could outweigh the risk. Yeah. And you think about the time of treatment. And you and I have talked about the subject of if someone's treated with this for a very long time, they're not having side effects on it. Like it may make sense to help decrease that atypical fracture risk to take a brief drug holiday. Um, and I, I suppose it's a risk you run anytime you are depositing bone in a non-natural way or a halfway natural way, uh, instead of like having your normal hormone profile and having exercise and having you know, sufficient vitamin D, magnesium, and other minerals that are needed. If you just take something to increase the bone density, you get a net positive effect, but you can't quite replicate what the body is doing naturally. Mm. Now, that's not saying that this should never been done, be done, that it's a bad treatment, or that any of these are bad treatments. Um, but it's just something to think about in looking at the patient in front of you. Um, again, tolerability, I think probably GI side effects are the most limiting for these medications. Some yep. people can't tolerate them for that reason. Yeah. Um, and it's the medication where you should stay upright after you take it. You don't want it to sit in your esophagus while laying down uh, taking this in the morning. Um, we've actually already mentioned parathyroid hormone. 
um, a, a kind of bioidentical, I believe it's technically recombinant parathyroid hormone, as a treatment that is certainly a good choice for some people. Um, and then we briefly mentioned Prolia and Avinity. Prolia is denusumab. And I'd say this is probably one of the go-to biologics for osteoporosis. Yeah, and you can actually use these. Is it the same company that owns both of the medications now, I believe? I, I believe so. I forget which one it is. Um, they've probably bought us a lunch within the last couple of years. Maybe they, <laughs> actually, maybe they haven't. Yeah, I, not that comes to mind. Um, but I do remember that this is probably even a year ago, uh, you had told me about the, I think you were referencing the frame extension study yep. and that you start with the Avinity, follow with the Prolia, and that was shown to have really good results. I mean, if you look yeah, at Yeah, I was very impressed with the results. Yeah, the outcomes there. And, and of these alone, you're going to see increases in bone mineral density and, and even significant enough to where you see changes in absolute rates of fracture that are pretty impressive, not just a like relative risk reduction because yeah. it can be a game of, you know, statistically. I don't know if that's a word, but yeah. we should invent one for that. It's, yeah, it's almost like there's <laughs> a lot of shenanigans. There's a lot of statistical shenanigans in medicine, that's for sure. And there's also a lot of synergy behind using a more reasonable dose or a shorter duration of exposure to a drug and then using multiple drugs to help with that. And this is the case of it. And they must be owned by the same drug company because for two brand name medications, companies, if it was two different companies, they wouldn't try to find a synergy between the two of them. They would say, my drug is the best, or <laughs> yeah. no, my drug is the yeah, best. Yeah, they compare them head to head instead of trying to use both. So um, if, the, if it is two different companies, props to whoever ran that study, um, as there is pretty good results. I believe they also, and most of these studies do uh, look at fracture risk, but um, for both bone density and fracture risk, Prolia and Avinity have good data, even over a short time period of one year. Yeah. And another thing to think about is the compliance. Uh, like we were just talking about the GI side effects with the bisphosphonates. And um, you don't have to have perfect compliance. And I think this applies to a lot of different concepts. But even if you are doing something three quarters of the time, there's still a net benefit there. It was interesting to see some of these charts. And obviously, there was a trend towards people who are taking something not at all or just 20% of the time. They don't have great results in terms of improvement or fracture yeah. reduction risk. But if you were doing the right things for your health in general, you're getting three quarters of your workouts in, you're tracking three quarters of your meals, you know, sleeping well three quarters of the time, it's going to be a lot better than not paying attention to any of those things aside from you know, maybe January, you know, one month out of the yeah. year, new year, new me. Yeah, and uh, we may even put up a, a chart in the not adherent study because the outcomes were very impressive. Even if you took your medication, whether it's a bisphosphonate um, or whatever else, if you took it half the time or, or 60 to 80% of the time, there were some very impressive results um, in those studies. And I like how they subgroup the types of adherence into persistence and compliance. So, um, they're, uh, they're very different, but regardless, if you have, um, a pulsed dosing protocol, which of course would not be on label, but if someone does, for example, pulse their bisphosphonate, um, they have drug holidays. So it's extremely reasonable to use a pulse dosing protocol. Then you could have most of the benefit without most of the risk. Yeah. And you're certainly not going to get a hundred percent of the benefit, but 
you know, pulsed regimens, like in our recent rapamycin podcast. And I guess you could say it is sort of a pulsed regimen since this is something people are taking on typically a weekly basis. Uh, but extending that window, I know you're referring to like maybe it's every two weeks, maybe it's once a month, um, anything yep. to get some sort of a benefit there um, and decrease the potential side effects. Uh, but pulse regimens, I think they are up and coming, uh, especially with these medications that be, can be given more infrequently. That's certainly the, the trend with the more laser targeted therapies like the monoclonals mm -hmm. and even siRNA therapies and ASOs, the things like that that we should probably podcast about in the future. Yeah, we will have more on that coming in the future. I think that's been a pretty good summary on bone mineral density. Hopefully our humor was not too dense for you. And as always, thank you for your time and may God give you health and happiness.